Man, I'm just happy today. I mean, this family is a gift. I, that's, I, I can't believe that I get to be a part of, of this Crossroads family. Uh, right now, in that uh, room upstairs, we probably have 100 people packed in there um, wanting to be more involved in Exalta, which is a ministry in Grand Rapids uh, to make uh, health care um, affordable to people who can't afford it. Um, and then just seeing how our church has been involved in the West Side, um, seeing a guy like Ryan Verweiss and how he just put it out there. Um, like, that's awesome. And, and I've said this about uh, God's people. Like, we're not as bad as what people think we are sometimes. <laughs> All you need to do is provide a bridge, a bridge from where we are with our hearts to a place where we can serve. And when a guy like Ryan Verweiss comes into the game and risks a lot because he cares and provides a bridge for our church uh, to be involved, um, that's, that, that makes me smile. Um, and it really, the theme verse that we have here at Crossroads for the year, a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, um, a people belonging to God, uh, declaring the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into light. Like, it's that. It's not coming to church. This is good. It's wonderful. It's a gift. But it's when we are living out the kingdom uh, in our world for the king's glory. So, anyway. And then on top of that, I haven't even seen Neil Martin yet, but Neil is here. And before Neil comes up, let me just say, some of you guys are too new to know Neil, but we used to be a two-campus church. God gifted our church uh, with this Brit. Um, I don't know how we got that gift, but for about three years, we would tag team. He'd preach on one campus, and I'd preach on the other campus. And through that, we... Um, we became true brothers in the gospel. Um, then God called him to Oxford, um, where right now Neil is really hitting his stride. He has one foot firmly planted in the leadership of a Presbyterian church plant that's right on the campus of Oxford. And it's going to be so fun to just see how God's going to use Neil in that capacity. And then he has another foot firmly planted in teaching at Oxford and uh, a, a Bible college in London. And so we are welcoming home a brother who's going to deliver us God's word. Neil, where are you, man? I haven't even said hello to you. Come on. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, thanks so much, Rod. And it, yeah, it's just a real pleasure to be back. Um, so many faces that I know. I know our, I bring greetings from our whole family. It's, it's a shame that um, Ruth and the kids can't be here, but they would all want to say um, hi. And we're so thankful to you for your interest in what we're doing and for your support. Um, so yeah, it's just a real thrill to be back. Anyone who wants to find out more about what's going on in Oxford, we're trying to kind of max out this week with evenings to give people the chance to get connected to it. So I think tonight and tomorrow night, 
Um, there are opportunities to come and find out what the ministry is and what's happening and get a bit of a flavor for what God's doing, you know, in a, in a place which I suppose if you were to take a pin and stick it on a map and say, where's the center of global secularism? I think Oxford could pretty much, it, it would be a really strong candidate. Um, and yet in that place, um, God is doing some really remarkable things just Two and a half weeks ago, I was sitting at a table in the coffee house ministry that we do, and one of the guys uh, uh, came in with his friend and said, okay, what we were talking about last Monday night, I realized I believe it, I've become a Christian, you know, and just unbelievable, amazing um, uh, stuff. And so little by little, we're seeing people, um, uh, yeah, abandoning um, this path that seems so persuasive to many, um, and yet doesn't satisfy, and putting their trust in Christ, and it's a real privilege to be involved in that. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Also, I wanted to apologize. Many of you have sent emails saying, can we meet up and all kinds of things. And I would love to. I am just so totally disorganized this time. Um, and I've just basically barely managed to get onto the plane on time. Um, so I would love to find ways to connect. Um, maybe we can chat afterwards or come to one of the events and we can figure it out from there. But just apologies for being um, very much less organized than normal. And, and normal is not that organized. So it, this is not saying much. Um, we're going to start in a slightly unusual way um, here this morning. Um, um, those of you who are following through the series in Numbers um, will know that we've come to number 16 um, this morning, which is one of the most challenging passages in the Old Testament. Um, and it felt to me in praying about this um, this morning that I should lead us in confession of sin as a body um, before we begin um, just to bring our hearts to the place, I think, where God is going to want us to stay for these next 40 minutes or so. Um, so I'm going to bring something from my home country, something ancient, something that uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ have been saying through the centuries, and um, maybe we can join them before God's throne in prayer um, as I lead us. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought, not to, we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to your promises declared to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to read our passage now. So um, you can sit for my words, but let's stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is Numbers 16. I'm going to read the first 35 verses of this chapter. I think that's as much as we need to bite off to get the sense of it. There's more that could come after. Um, and I encourage you to um, uh, get yourselves into that maybe um, in the uh, days following this as you think and meditate on what it is that God has for us here this morning. <clears throat> Number 16, starting at verse 1. Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites... Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. 
With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, and I love this, his first reaction, he fell face down. And then he said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will make that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses, chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough that you, for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you're trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers are banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? It's kind of striking, isn't it? (laughs) That's what they think Egypt was. To kill us in the wilderness. And now you also want to lord it over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land of flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and he said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron Each man is to take his sense and put incense in it, 250 senses in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your senses also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives and children and little ones at the entrances to their tents. And then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground underneath them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. 
They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. Okay, so I'd be grateful if you uh, kept a, um, a thumb in that passage um, as we go along here. I'm going to um, begin by uh, praying and then we're going to dive into uh, this text. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you now seeking your uh, voice, uh, wanting to uh, humble ourselves as we come to this really challenging section of your word. Uh, not a part of the Bible that we would really choose uh, to read um, and yet... Uh, We know that you have written all these things for our good, that you have written them ultimately to point us um, to uh, our need of a saviour and to uh, show us him. And we pray that you would please help us to be attentive uh, to your voice, attentive to that purpose this morning. Would you be at work by your spirit, opening our eyes so that we can see ourselves more clearly, uh, opening our eyes so that we can ask our questions clearly, uh, opening our eyes so that we can see Uh, the way that you would respond. And we pray that we might be changed, that we might be equipped, uh, that we might be um, uh, humbled, that we might be enabled to um, live in your world as people who uh, truly understand how much we've received from you as a result of what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is really an incredibly dark and challenging part of God's word, isn't it? Not exactly one of the Bible's hallmark moments. Uh, Not exactly gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is disturbing. Uh, This is frightening. This is a passage maybe we perhaps wish wasn't even in the Bible. I don't know whether you've ever had one of those experiences, I'm sure many of us have, when someone who we've trusted, someone who we've believed in, has suddenly kind of revealed a, a side of themselves that's dark and unexpected. Maybe someone with whom we felt safe, they suddenly cease to be safe. Or maybe even worse, when it's us. You know, when uh, we see that darkness emerge in our own words, in our own actions. You know, we fly off the handle with a spouse or with our kids. Uh, We find ourselves saying things that we thought we would never say, thinking things that we would never think. Is that what's happening here with God? This is the God who heard the cry of his people, Israel, in their enslavement in Egypt, and he moved towards them in love to rescue them. This is the God who carried them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself, as Moses describes it in Exodus 19. This is the God who appeared like something out of a fairy story and came and waded into this situation with enemies they could do nothing about and delivered them. The Israelites thought they were safe with him, didn't they? But now it seems they're not. We didn't go on and read about the general uprising that follows this event the morning after the Israelites come out and they oppose Moses en masse. By the time we reach the end of number 16, 15,000 people, men and women, lie dead, consumed by fire, by plague, even by the very ground they stand on. 
for resisting God and his appointed leaders. The fairy story is well and truly over, isn't it? And all of it's worse, perhaps, because I hope uh, we can be kind of honest about our reactions to this text. You know, as I read it, I have a sneaking suspicion that the rebels have a point. In chapter 16, verse 3, Korah makes his case to Moses. The whole community is holy, he says, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? And that statement maybe should be ringing bells uh, for us from these sermons over these past few weeks um, as you've been looking forward to the New Testament with that verse that Rod reminded us of from 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And you guys know that that's a quote from Exodus 2. Actually, it's the completion of the quote that I just read for you. It goes like this. You yourself saw what I did to Egypt, says the Lord, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what the Exodus was about. God was setting apart a people for himself. God wasn't just transporting them from one form of servitude to another. God was delivering them. God was redeeming them. God was setting them free. And the essence of that freedom was a new status before him, wasn't it? The Israelites could live now with God in their midst. If, midst, if you know the overall shape of the Bible story, this is completely unprecedented since the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. There's been nothing like that until the Exodus. And then suddenly God shows up in a pillar of cloud and fire and he's with his people. He's living amongst them. He's in their camp. And I think it's that amazing change that drives and gives shape to Korah's complaint here, isn't it? Korah claims that Moses doesn't get it, that Moses isn't with the program. The Israelites are priests themselves now. Every one of them accepted in their own right. They don't need anyone lording it over them. They don't need someone standing between them and God, telling them what to think. And that appeals to us too, doesn't it? Certainly that's kind of, it seems like the theme song of our modern Western world. And perhaps maybe we, we're even tempted to read the verses in 1 Peter that way too. To be a chosen people, to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation gives us a kind of welcome exemption from other forms of authority. There's a directness in our access to God now and a flexibility about how we approach him. We're priests. We don't need to feel bound by some kind of time-honored religious playbook. We don't need to feel bound by the way this church or any church does things. Our relationship with God doesn't need to be mediated anymore. We can just walk right in. We're priests. God is anxious to hear what we think. But how will we react to Korah's take on these new freedoms that the Israelites enjoy? It's abundantly clear that this doesn't go down too well with God. In a chapter of gut-churning moments, perhaps the most disturbing bit is right there in number 1620, when we first hear God's reaction to this rebellion. Speaking to Moses and Aaron, he tells them to separate themselves from the assembly so that he can put an end to them at once. God doesn't just propose to wipe out the rebels. He proposes to wipe out the entire community and begin again. So what are we to do with this? Even if there is fault with Korah, isn't there disproportionate fault on the other side of this confrontation too? 
is the reaction not more condemnable than the thing against which it reacts? These are the questions we've got to wrestle with as we begin to get to grips with this passage. And I know it's uncomfortable to ask these things, but I think in our Bible reading, it's really important that we do actually give airtime to the way that we react and not just immediately kind of squash it. So let's start to pull this thing apart with God's help and see if we can figure out what's actually going on. In all our Bible reading, understanding context is a vital step towards understanding content, isn't it? In fact, that's true with everything that we do in life, the conversations we have, the emails that we write, and so on. If we don't know the characters in any given story and where they come from, if we don't know when it happened and why it happened, we really are not going to have that much of a clue about what the whole thing means. As far as we know, so far, having just read Numbers 16 here this morning, Korah and these council members and the Reubenites, they're, they're not much more than stickmen, are they? We don't know really anything about their backgrounds. We don't know where they come from. We don't know how it might be relevant. And so if we're going to fill in some of those gaps, we've got to be prepared to work a little bit harder. So if you look down with me again at verse 1 of our passage, we're going to get into this and see if we can start to uh, tease this thing apart a little bit. In verse 1, we're told that Korah was the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. And that's going to be important because it turns out the seeds of this rebellion lie right here in Korah's family tree. Korah's father, Izar, was not an only child. He was one of four brothers. Izar is brother number two. And I'm going to uh, give you this on the screen because we, need, we have a little bit of family genealogy work to do here. So if you can throw that up, RJ. Sweet. Love it. Okay. So, um, so here's Izar, and you can see that he's one of four. So the, the really important thing for us to get as we work on this together is who is brother number one? Brother number one in this family is called Amram, and Amram is Moses' dad. So if we just develop this, you can see what the issue is. Amram is Moses' dad. That means that Korah is Moses' first cousin, and he's Aaron's first cousin as well. How does that change things? Well, we might think that this proximity to Moses and Aaron is going to give Korah some kind of special prominence in the tribe of Levi, perhaps. Maybe even a senior role in the government of Israel. After all, in human terms, particularly in the ancient world where the way things work within families kind of governs your seniority and your status, after Moses and Aaron, Korah is the next most senior member of this family, the oldest son of Moses' father's younger brother. But that wasn't the way that things worked out. So if you flick back with me now to Numbers 3, this is a passage which tells us about leadership within the clans of Levi. And look down at verse 27, we're going to see this same branch of the family kind of illuminated for us with greater depth. So Numbers 3.27 goes like this. To Kohath belong the clans of the Amramites. Remember, Amram is Moses' dad. The Izarites. Remember, Izar is Korah's dad. And then the Hebronites and the Uzielites. Hebron and Uziel are the third and fourth brothers. And these are the Kohathite clans. So here they all are. Can you see the four guys? Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. So that all sounds just so far so good. But listen to the way it continues. So following on from that verse 27. The number of all the males a month old or more in this clan was 8,600. The Kohathites were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. 
the Kohathite clans were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle, and the leader of the families of the Kohathite clans was Elizaphan, the son of Uziel. So was the leader Korah, the eldest son of the second brother? Nope. The leader was Elizaphan, the eldest son of the last brother, and here he is. So we don't know why it turned out this way. The Bible is silent on this question. But what we can see is that Korah has been overlooked. He's been humiliated in terms of the way these things work in his culture. His rights have been ignored. His importance has not been recognized. What about the other rebels involved in this action against Moses? Alongside Korah, we also have two Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram. These are the guys who won't even come to the meeting with Moses to discuss what's their problem. And they too had been overlooked, although their issues go a lot further back in the story. You see, Korah's frustrated hopes, the fact that Elizaphan, his kind of distant cousin down the road, uh, has been raised up to leadership ahead of him. This is relatively recent news at the point that we're reading this text. This has all been resolved since they came out of Egypt. But if we go all the way back to Levi and his brothers, to the generation that first went down to Egypt 400 plus years ago, we find the Reubenites have got some grievances of their own. Levi, you remember, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the forefathers of the tribe of, tribes of Israel. Let's get these guys up here. Here are all my little um, sons of Jacob. And in that family too, the normal expectations about who's going to get the best seats at the table of life are all messed up. So we hear a lot in that story about Joseph, don't we? Joseph is the natural leader. He's the one to whom all the sheaves of wheat bow down. Joseph is the 11th son. We hear a lot in that family about Levi. He's the big deal in our story this morning, isn't he? He's the third son. We hear a lot about Judah. He's the fourth son. But can anyone tell me who the firstborn son of Jacob was? Thank you. That's right. <laughs> Here they are. Reuben's the firstborn son. And so within this family, again, if you're going by the norms of the ancient world, he should have a place in the government of Israel, shouldn't he? He should have a special role for his descendants. And yet the Bible is silent on this as well. And what about the other rebels? Number 16 verse 2 tells us Korah was supported by 250 community leaders who have been appointed as members of the council. These guys surely couldn't claim to have been overlooked, could they? But their progress, I think, had reached a kind of glass ceiling. There was no scope for progression beyond membership of this council, as far as we can tell. If they were interested in elevation among their peers and being noticed as these outstanding leaders, then kind of the bolt was shot for these guys. They'd gone as far as they could go. There was no way up from the top of the tree. And so it seems they too felt discontent. Now, there's going to be some more work for us to do on this context, so we're going to um, come back to it, but we're going to stop here, having reached a kind of base camp in our work with numbers, and just have a look around and see what we can learn from where we've got to so far. Korah and the Reubenites and the 250 community leaders, these guys have a reason, they think, to be dissatisfied with their lot in life. But that's not the way that God thinks. God has absolutely no interest in human ideas of entitlement for the truly radical reason that in, in his eyes, none of us is entitled to anything. 
And for me, this is one of the most critical and profound challenges to the norms of our culture that you're going to find anywhere in the message of Christianity. It smashes just directly through the front door of our assumptions about human rights, about what it is that we think that we're entitled to and that we deserve. In God's eyes, none of us is entitled to anything, not even life. I'm going to put a verse up on the screen here, which I think is extremely revealing from Job. If it were his intention, and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together, and mankind would return to the dust. That's our Bible's perspective on what it is that we truly deserve, brothers and sisters. Do you get it? In the biblical picture of reality, God is giving us everything that we have every instant that we have it. There is no such thing as the status quo. If God were not extending his hand of blessing to every single person in this room at this moment, not only would every one of us cease to breathe, every one of us would cease to exist. Existence is a gift to us from our good creator moment by moment. We can't claim that we own it or that we deserve it. We are radically dependent on God. But we just find it almost impossible to think that way, don't we? We just assume that our normality is normal. We assume that it just keeps happening on its own. It's only when something especially good comes along that we start talking about God showing up or feeling blessed. And that lasts for about five minutes until we've got used to the blessing and we've built it into a new definition of normal. So now it takes something even better to persuade us that God is showing up and that God is blessing us. It's totally wrong. That's not Christianity. As long as we think like that, we haven't even begun to grasp the true dimensions of our reliance on God that the gospel proclaims. If we get sick or if we lose a job, if a cherished relationship breaks down, it's not because God is being unkind to us. God is blessing us less than we've grown used to. That's true. But does that mean that God is not blessing us at all? God is blessing us less than we've grown used to. But does that mean that we can blame him? Every person in this room has lived for years in God's world at the top of the pile of creation. It's a world full of amazing things that we live in, isn't it? Full of amazing landscapes, full of amazing animals, full of amazing plants, each pouring out its testimony to God's creativity and providence. But we are the jewel in the crown of it all. We're made in his image. Every day we see, we breathe, we touch, we think, we reflect, we make, we love. Even if we lost it all this instant, could any of us really claim that the balance of the account was less than gigantic blessing? So we have to readjust our assessment of ourselves in light of these truths, don't we? If this passage was a description of a nation in the hands of a human leader, yes, certainly red flags should be flying in all directions. But if the Bible is worth the paper that it's written on, that's not what's happening here. This is a story about people living in proximity to the God who made them, the God who gave life to everyone who has ever lived and who has taken away the life of everyone who has ever died. This isn't a story about him losing control or about him revealing a dark side 
to his character. This is a story about people who have got so used to basking in undeserved light that when the light dims even a little, they perceive it as darkness by contrast, not realizing how, much, how little they deserve the light that they have. Do we have the right to judge God for not giving us more undeserved gifts, especially when we haven't thanked him for the ones we have already? I don't think so. We find this difficult. Absolutely, we should. But it doesn't mean that God is acting just unjustly or even disproportionately. We just have to completely blow up our vision of how the world works if we're going to see this right. But there's still some more work for us to do here as we think about the context of Korah's rebellion. So Korah, as we've already seen, was descended from Kohath, one of the three sons of Levi. And the Levites had a special place in the Israelite community. The other 11 Israelite tribes were awarded land to work um, and on which to raise their crops in Canaan, but not the Levites. God set the Levites aside for the work of ministry in and around the tabernacle. The Levites were freed up from all of these other tasks. They left them to the, their, um, uh, the other 11 tribes to get on with so that they could concentrate on organizing and leading the nation's worship. But that doesn't mean that all of them had the same responsibilities. Some of them were priests, but not all. And to understand number 16, we really need to grasp this fact. Assuming that every Levite that we meet in the Bible is a priest is maybe a bit like assuming every lawyer we meet is a criminal defense attorney. That's the stereotypical image of a lawyer, isn't it? That, you know, if you've watched enough films, that's what you assume a lawyer is. But there are actually lots of other types of lawyer in the world. Property lawyers, family lawyers, tax lawyers, corporate lawyers. Maybe not such interesting lawyers, but lawyers nonetheless. And the same thing goes for Levites. So if you flick back with me again to Numbers 3 and 4, you're going to see this. We already know that Levi has these three sons, don't we? Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. I'll get those back on the screen for you so that you can see them. Here we are. And in Numbers 3 and 4, we're going to find out that each one of these clans has a different task to perform. It was only one small branch of this Levitical clan that uh, got to do the, uh, the priest work. Here's Aaron, the son of Amram, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. That's the pathway down to the priests. But there's a lot more going on in the clans of Levi than that, isn't there? So if you were a Gershonite or a Merarite, your role was essentially to be a removal man. The Gershonites were the guys who took charge of the fabric parts of the tabernacle, the roof, the walls, the curtains, and so on. They set them up, they tore them down, they transported them on a fleet of carts from place to place as the Lord led the community through the desert. That's the Gershonites. The Merarites also were removal guys. They took charge of the structure of the tabernacle, the wooden frame, the poles, the pegs, the tie lines. Like the Gershonites, they set them up, they tore them down, they moved them on carts from place to place. And we find out in the, the passage that talks about the marching order of the Israelite camp that these guys all went first. They went ahead so that they could arrive in advance and make sure the tabernacle was all set up when everyone else uh, arrived. Now, our temptation, of course, is to look at this and say, well, that's not fair. You know, removal seems like a pretty lowly task to us, especially compared to being a priest. But God doesn't think like that. He doesn't want us to think like that either. By jumping immediately to how underprivileged we think these guys were compared with the priests, we're just walking into the same entitlement problem that we talked about, aren't we? We're failing to see how amazingly privileged they were in every other way. 
And if our lot in life is maybe removals or something equivalent, these texts are here to teach us we can rejoice today. We're blessed. We're valued. We're valuable in God's economy. God doesn't hold the people at the top of life's tree in higher esteem than those at the bottom. Just look at Moses' reaction to the rebels in Numbers 1611. He says, who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? I love this. Moses' perspective is just like, Aaron's no big deal. Who cares if he's a priest? It doesn't make him more valuable or happier than you. In fact, that's the great lie that's being exposed in this text, isn't it? That being at the top is going to make us happier. If number 16 teaches us anything, it's that the higher we rise, the more discontent we're going to feel. As soon, and we're going to discover that pretty soon as we look at what happens with the Kohathites themselves. You see, these guys had a role that was closer to the heart of the action. The Kohathites were responsible not for moving the fabric of the tabernacle or for moving the poles and the pegs and all the wooden parts. They were responsible for the contents of the building, for the ark, for the altar, for the other holy things. It was still removals, but it was kind of highly specialized removals, a bit like moving canisters of nuclear fuel around from place to place. This is how it would go. The pillar of cloud and fire would rise from the camp and the priests would enter the tabernacle and they would carefully cover all of these movable items with leather wrappers and with cloths that were color-coded according to the holiness of each item. Purple for the bronze altar where the animals were sacrificed, scarlet for the plates and the dishes used for offering bread and wine, and pure blue for the gold altar for the lampstands and for the ark. And when that was done and only when that was done, the priests would then hand the tent over to the Kohathites to carry the items on their shoulders. So no carts for the Kohathites. These items were far too precious for this. God wanted the Kohathites to baby the holy things, feeling every bump in the ground under their feet as they walked with them, caring for them as they did their own bodies. Why? Well, this was dangerous work. In Numbers 4, we read that after Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles and when the camp was ready to move, only then were the Kohathites to come and do the carrying, but they must not touch the holy things or they will die. Numbers 4.20 tells us the same thing. Now, I don't want to get us sidetracked here, but there's an important connection from this material in Numbers to another really tricky passage in the Old Testament that might have troubled us. You might remember that incident in 2 Samuel 6 where this guy called Uzzah, who is probably a Kohathite himself, reaches out to steady the ark as David is bringing it into Jerusalem. He dies on the spot. Brandon preached really helpfully uh, for us on this two summers ago. It's not dissimilar to our passage today in number 16. Is Our hearts understandably rise in compassion for this guy Uzzah and for his family. And doubts arise, I think, in our minds about the God that the passage describes. But the work that we've just done in Numbers provides us with some much-needed context for that incident, doesn't it? Because if Numbers is the guide, we can see immediately the glaring problems with what's happening in 2 Samuel. The removal of the ark there is like taking this canister of nuclear fuel and just kind of throwing it in the back of your four-wheel and driving over unmade roads to the next town. It's really ill-advised. The ark in 2 Samuel isn't covered with anything as far as we can tell. You know, you get these pictures, don't you? We sit in Indiana Jones, people kind of carrying the ark and you can see all the gold and the cherubim. It wasn't like that. This thing never moved in such a way that you could see it. 
It was covered in cloths and leather. And then they really, really carefully looked after this thing. And then the other really striking part about the other story is that the ark is on a cart, slip sliding around on the bed of this thing. When Uzzah reaches out to touch it, his fate is exactly what these commandments were designed to avoid, right? And I think it's a lesson for us too. If we don't listen to God's commandments, this is all we can expect in the end. God hasn't put us in this world to make up the best way to live ourselves. He's put us here to seek him and find him and enjoy the obedience that he built us for. If we're not doing that, we should be sensing that impending disaster and looking for help. Right from the beginning of Numbers, there's this striking emphasis on the danger as well as the comfort of God's presence. If we look back into Leviticus and Exodus, we see it even more clearly. God is an amazing friend to his people, but that doesn't make him our equal. He's different. He's set apart. He's holy in the absolute sense of that word. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Without atonement, without explicit surrender to his terms of engagement, human beings just wither before him. But bringing all this back now to number 16, I think we're finally able to see what's happening here more clearly now. Korah, we've established, is Moses' first cousin, the eldest son of Amram's younger brother. He considers himself to have been overlooked. He's been humiliated. His rights have been ignored. His importance has not been recognized. But that's not the whole story, is it? Korah is a Levite. That's a pretty elevated thing. And he's a human being made in the image of God. That's a pretty elevated thing too, something that each of us shares. And of course, he's not just a Levite either. He's a Kohathite. He's not a Gershonite. He's not a Merarite. He doesn't lug the physical fabric of the tabernacle from place to place. He's a Kohathite entrusted with the very holy things of God. His life is right at the center of the action. And it's out of that place that he rebels. It puts that familiar verse in Psalm 84 in context, doesn't it? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. When you realize that was written by the sons of Korah and that Korah and Dathan and Abiram were all swallowed up in the entrances of their tents. I would rather be a Gershonite or a Merarite too, a simple doorkeeper, a removal man, than have outstanding privileges in the family of God and end up leading myself and my family into the abyss. In fact, the privileges and the rebellion are surely connected, aren't they? If Korah had just been Joe Israelite living with his family out in the suburbs of the camp somewhere, he only ever would have seen the ark from a distance. He only would have met the priests when he came to the tabernacle for worship. But as a Kohathite, these things were right in his face, weren't they? And so perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that he wanted to reach out and take them for himself. And aren't we the same? Paul warns us in Romans about precisely this problem. Sin, he tells us, is an opportunistic killer. You don't start coveting someone else's home or someone else's wife until you live next door to them, right? Or until you see them every day. Cora's story is here to help us visualize that danger and bring it home to us, how dangerous that danger really is. We mustn't let sin seize the opportunity afforded by the things that we're close to because it can ruin us. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of our God than dwell in the tents of the unrighteous. God wants us to count our blessings, yes, 
but also be aware of the dangers that are associated with them. I wonder whether we're particularly vulnerable to this living in our increasingly interconnected world. We all have devices in our pockets that can bring us into proximity with almost anything we want. All we have to do is click on the right thing, swipe the right link. But in the light of this text, I think God would have us be super careful about that proximity. If we get ourselves close to things that we shouldn't have, we're going to find it really, really hard to resist the temptation to reach out and take them. Envy is a real thing. It's deadly. It turns Christians into hollowed out shells of what God made us to be. It turns the heart by stages from striving to build others up to striving to tear others down. I hope this story will encourage each of us to take stock of the people in our world, of the things in our world which have the capacity to provoke that reaction and prayerfully to ask for God's grace to do something about it. But there's also something important in the specific thing that Korah wants here, isn't there? Let me just reread Moses' analysis of this situation from verses 8 to 10. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself but now you're trying to get the priesthood too. Moses saw what I guess we probably see too in the light of the background to this story. Kor and his friends are not really on some kind of commendable egalitarian political kick here, are they? Defending everyone's right to be equally important. Their problem wasn't really that their fellow Israelites had too little power and they were desperate to support them. Their problem was that they didn't have enough power themselves, right? Korah and his friends didn't want to be under Moses and Aaron at all. They wanted to be Moses and Aaron. They wanted to be the mediators. They wanted to be the priests. And that was the crux of their problem. Because the thing they wanted to be was the thing on which their lives depended and they didn't know it. There's an ancient Jewish commentary on this text that explains what's going on here by pointing to the passage that comes immediately before it at the end of Numbers 15. Rod took us here super helpfully last week. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Right at the end of Numbers 15, you get this little section. It's oddly out of place, dealing with the command for the Israelites to wear tassels on the corners of their garments. Speak to the Israelites, God tells Moses, and say to them throughout the generations to come, you're to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord in each tassel. What in the world is this about? And why is it there? The detail the Jewish commentator wants to focus on is the color of that special cord. The color blue in the Hebrew there is exactly the same word that's used for the, uh, the color of those cloths that the priests would use to cover the holy things. You remember how it goes? The color-coded uh, kind of system that they had, purple for the bronze altar where the animals were sacrificed, scarlet for the plates and dishes used for offering bread and wine, and pure blue for the gold altar and for the lampstands and for the ark. All these things were holy, but the blue was reserved for the most holy things. Blue was for things that indicated the presence of God himself. And so blue tassels for everyone is really quite a dramatic statement, isn't it? 
for our Jewish commentator, blue tassels are probably the reason why Korah stands up and makes this statement to Moses in the first place. It's like he's saying, the whole community is holy, every single one of them, just look at what they're wearing. But Korah seems to have jumped straight to that conclusion without stopping to consider the way that little section in Numbers 15 ends. How did this immaculate holiness come to these people of God in the first place? It wasn't theirs by some kind of inalienable right. Numbers 15.41 tells us the Israelites were holy because God brought them up out of Egypt. The Israelites weren't just dependent on God for their physical lives, as we've already seen, were they? Neither are we. They were dependent, and we are dependent on God for our spiritual lives, too, for our standing before him as people who are acceptable in sight. It was God who would set them apart. God had delivered them from Egypt. God had provided sacrifices in their place. God had brought them out of slavery at his own expense. They weren't wearing blue tassels because they'd won some kind of international holiness competition, right? They were wearing blue tassels because God had made them holy in his sight. That was what the whole apparatus of the priesthood was there to remind them about, wasn't it? Holiness isn't a status to stand on or some kind of personal possession from which you can go on to demand more. Holiness is a gift from God given to us um, and uh, communicated to these Israelites in the story through the symbolism of what the priests do. They're a kind of living illustration of this dependence on God for acceptance. By making sacrifices, by praying prayers, the priests help the Israelites to understand that the tassels are an appropriate thing to wear, but all on the basis of what God has done for them. God saw the Israelites as holy because what because of what he had done on their behalf. Now, Korah doesn't get this, does he? He seems to think he exists alongside the priest somehow, with privileges that are secured just because of who he is. He doesn't think that he needs any sacrifices making for his brokenness and sin. On the contrary, he seems to have thought that he was just the kind of person who should be making sacrifices for others. But he totally misunderstands the truth of his situation. The relationship between people and priests in the Old Testament is maybe more like the relationship between a tandem parachute jumper and their instructor. You know, when you're strapped to the instructor and the instructor's wearing the parachute and you both jump out of the plane together, you can float safely to the ground, but it's moment by moment dependence all the way. The person who gets out a knife and tries to cut themselves free from their instructor while they're falling or perhaps who even tries to take the place of their instructor is going to hit the ground hard. And that's what's going on here with Korah. Korah, I guess, is just following in Adam's footsteps here, not realizing how dependent he is on God's goodness, like Adam, who reached out to replace the person on whom he depended, the God on whom he depended. Just like Korah, Adam had that whole proximity thing going on in grand style, didn't he? He walked with God in the cool of the day. And walking with God made him want to be God. There was infinite scope for appreciating all that had been done for him and infinite scope for turning all of that appreciation back into praise. But as the story goes, there was scope too for turning it into envy. For God knows that when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened 
and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. And the fruit of that envy was a curse. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. There couldn't be a more graphic illustration of those chilling lines than the fate of Korah, could there? Swallowed up by the earth beneath him. But the story of Korah doesn't just point us back to Adam, the figure in the Bible who most naturally represents us. It also points us forward to the wonderful reality that there's another very different representative for men and women like us. Korah was, and should have been content to remain, an ordinary, less than ordinary character in God's story. Ordinary is no small thing in the larger picture, is it? Ordinary for all of us means bearing the image of the King of Kings. It means living in his miraculously beautiful and productive world. It means enjoying the privileges and gifts and relationships that God has measured out to us in his wisdom and turning our reflections on all that we see into thanks and praise. Though we're more flawed in ourselves than we could ever imagine, we're more loved than we could ever dream. The balance of our account is gigantic blessing. But driven by envy, Korah wouldn't rest there, would he? He considered himself overlooked. He considered himself humiliated. His rights had been ignored. His importance had not been recognized. And so he reached up in an attempt to establish himself as something he could never and should never have been, wholly in his own right, independent, self-sufficient. But that's not how God thinks. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, who was everything Korah foolishly, foolishly believed himself to be, and so much more. He was holy in his own right, independent, self-sufficient. But driven by mercy, he wouldn't rest there. Jesus was willing to be overlooked. He was willing to be humiliated. He was willing to have his rights ignored and his importance neglected. Jesus was willing to enter the presence of God in the form of an ordinary man, more loved in himself than we can ever imagine, but bearing flaws greater than we can ever dream. Jesus hung on a cross, and the eyes that are too pure to look upon evil turned away. The sky went dark. The ground opened its mouth and consumed him. Why? So that in him every corer Every proud, envious human fixated on their rights and entitlements, every me, every you, every single one of us might see their debt to justice satisfied so that in him we might go free. Let's pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought, not to, we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
and grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live godly, righteous, and sober lives to the glory of thy holy name. Amen.